Homelessness in Fredericton and around New Brunswick is growing in visibility. And some experts say the city is experiencing an affordable housing crisis. In Moncton, large tent camps popped up until they were demolished by the city. The group living in their tents say they woke up to orders from police to grab what they could and go. In the provincial capital, homeless shelters are at capacity. Those looking for a bed at night are placed on a waiting list for one of three shelters. The issue became impossible to overlook when a tent encampment sprung up right outside Fredericton's main homeless shelter. It is a sad reality that becomes much more obvious when it gets cold outside. There are people without a warm place to stay at night. In Fredericton, a homeless tent encampment has now sprung up right next door to the homeless shelter. You're listening to Sidebar. A production brought to you by the Brunswickan and CHSR. I'm Alexander Silverman. And I'm Isabella Gier. We're going to take you beyond the headlines once a month. Focusing on issues in Fredericton, New Brunswick. This month's episode is on homelessness in Fredericton. We'll talk to the executive director of the city's homeless shelters about his opposition to a new emergency shelter. This one got out of hand, uh, to be quite honest. We'll take a visit to Fredericton's tent city to meet with people living out in the cold. What they've given us is great. It's a band-aid right now. And we'll speak with an expert who believes the demographics of homelessness are changing in the province. One of the reasons they're filling up is not necessarily that the numbers are increasing, but the constitution, the demographics of the numbers are changing. Next to the Victoria Health Centre in Fredericton is an encampment that has become known as Tent City. The collection of tents, bags, supplies, and shopping carts line the walking path just off of Smite Street near Woodstock Road. Nine individuals have been living here all winter because of a shortage in space at the three homeless shelters in the city. Talk of Tent City has been widespread in the community after media coverage resulted in people donating blankets and army-issued tents. Last month, St. Mary's First Nation announced plans to open a permanent shelter on the reserve. And the Anglican Diocese of Fredericton donated a home to the Community Action Group on Homelessness for use as an emergency shelter for winter months. Warren Maddox is the executive director of Fredericton Homeless Shelters and has mixed feelings about the new emergency shelter. Can you just tell me about the current state of homelessness in Fredericton? Well, obviously it exists. At Fredericton Homeless Shelters, we have three spaces that we run. On any given day, we're housing between 40 and 42 people. We know that technically there's probably, you know, as of about a month ago, would have been another 35 that were sort of roughing it. There's been two new shelters that have opened up in the past two weeks. So the, the Bishop's Residence one on the south side and St. Mary's First Nation opened up a 20-bed shelter a week and a half ago. Do you think it's worse than past years or do you think it's pretty appropriate? It's pretty much on par. Okay. I know that St. John and Moncton are having a bit more challenge. There's more people down in that area. But overall, it's, it isn't anything really necessarily more than what we've seen in the past. There's a third that are you know, just suffering from extreme poverty. Otherwise, there's nothing wrong with them. And then the other two-thirds is this really complex, super challenging mixture of mental health and addictions. And usually the core of that is mental health more than addictions. Not always, but usually. So you have the mental health core, and then they begin to self-medicate on whatever um, to find an escape or to find a release. 
and then suddenly they find themselves addicted and things spiral downwards because self-medicating doesn't solve the problem. It actually exacerbates it. So then you have someone that's self-medicating, it's not helping their mental health issues. The mental health issues continue to, to be there and grow. The addictions are firmly entrenched at that point. So it's really incredibly complex to try to pull them apart a little bit so you can deal with one or the other. Of the addictions that we encounter, opiates are the, actually the minor of them. Those are more manageable because you can get somebody who's uh, an opiate addict, you can get them into a methadone program or onto Suboxone, which is another uh, alternative for uh, harm reduction. You know, we try to deal with every individual as an individual instead of looking at you know big steel templated cookie cutter solutions that just don't apply. So we deal with every individual as they come in as an individual with their own unique challenges and and how do we deal with that and, and what's the best route and, and who are the agencies that can help. The emergency shelter, was that something that was necessary because there was a lot of homelessness or was that why did they need to do the emergency shelter? <laughs> um, I think the emergency shelter came out of a, an overall feeling within the community that something needed to be done. In the past, you know, there's been sort of the, the main trench agencies, the guys that are working in the front lines on the trenches, will sit down in November and have a cup of coffee and iron it out. So we'll just say, okay, who we got out there? What are we going to do with them? How can we shoehorn so-and-so in? What can we do with so-and-so? This one got out of hand, uh, to be quite honest. So then you suddenly had someone calling a large meeting where there was you know 70 people in the room and it just started snowballing so in the past i've been at this for you know coming up on five years now this one just went and blossomed into something completely different is there a need for another cold shelter it certainly takes pressure off us you know one of the hardest things that our staff has to do in, you know in february or january is you know say no sorry we're full you have to you know go check with the police department or you know, maybe the Salvation Army or, or something like that, but we'll try to find additional spaces. So in that regard, it, it does take some of the pressure off us. We don't really have anything to do with the bishop's place. They didn't consult us or, or talk to us about it. We have had a lot to do with St. Mary's. So St. Mary's opened up another shelter uh, a couple weeks ago. So we've had a, an enormous amount of involvement with them from how to run a shelter, what to look for, what supplies you need. We've shipped over three truckloads of, of material support from here. You know, we've walked them through the administration of a shelter, what's involved in that. So we've had, you know, we've had really close contact with St. Mary. So you would say that the emergency shelter wasn't really necessary? It's tricky. It really is a tricky thing. I'm trying to be supportive of it because I know that, that it came from a good place. I think that uh, with the St. Mary's adding 20 spaces, that it was good. I think that that this one is, will be a benefit overall. So I remain optimistic and supportive with St. Mary's, and St. Mary's is, is a, an incredibly well thought out, planned um, venture. Was the St. Mary's one, <clears throat> was there a spike in that region of homelessness? Or? I think First Nations have always, First Nations communities have always dealt with, with issues. and. Certainly trauma is a huge one within the First Nations communities. You know, the white folk really screwed them over and took a lot of years to do it. So I think that that particular bird is coming home to roost in terms of, of the trauma that Indigenous people face. So they're dealing with all the exact same things here, but they're dealing with it in a much more concentrated format. 
so I think that, that their thoughts were, you know, initially was that we got to do something to get on top of this. So I think that the, the First Nations community is exactly the same as, as any other community. It's just you have a, a little more concentrated form of it. Overall, that they need, you know, they need to be able to do, to find their own path forward. And, you know, it's up to us as an organization and it's up to us ethically and morally, you know, to reach out and, and to do what we can do to help them get to where they want to go. Can you tell me a bit about <coughs> Tent City? So is that because people don't want to use shelters or is it because there's an overload or why are there people using tents? I have no comment about Tent City. Okay. Is there anything that Fredericton can do for the situation or do you think it's more so an individual aspect what you guys are doing now as well? I mean the, the city itself has really come quite a long ways, believe it or not. You know, Four years ago, they would have just simply said it's not our problem, and have and did say it's not our problem. So they've come a long, long way. The councilors, the staff are, are getting there slowly, but you know they're they still have their own policies and bylaws and everything else to to deal with. Ultimately, as it falls into the provinces to me, and then you know the province should be reaching out to the federal government for support and providing support to cities. But critically, where the biggest dent is going to get made is the frontline agencies. So us, John Howard Society, Capital Region Mental Health and Addictions, Liberty Lane, uh, Women in Transition, those guys at the Chrysalis House, for, which is a youth shelter, it's the frontline guys that need the support and need proper support. You know, we need a raise from the government. We desperately need a raise. You know, that we're right now about 18% of our budget comes from the province and it really honestly should be at least 50%. You look at places like Manitoba or Saskatchewan or places like that, 98% of the, of the shelter's funding comes from the province. So they're not spending, you know, 80% of their time trying to do fundraising. You know, they're spending 80% of their time focused on how to get a resident from the crisis point to stabilized to housed. So working along a continuum. And, you know, within that continuum, you have housing first. It's in there, it's one little element, but the big, the most important element is the continuum. That's critical. And that's, you know, working within the continuum is, is a model that we learned from New York City. The most critical part for the community, for the people that listen to your podcast, to, you know, government leaders or whatever, support the shelters. Make sure that we're funded properly so we can do our job, so that we can be open 24 hours a day, so that we can do the support that is necessary to move a person through the continuum from crisis to housed and not just temporarily housed in terms of you know we've seen way too often cases where someone will get an apartment but they don't have the support around them 90 days later they're back to us so it's getting them so that when they hit they hit and stick as opposed to hit and bounce back that's all my question you want to add on that or give to the shelters <laughs> perfect thank you very much no problem glad to have you Maddox's office is located right next to Tent City, where nine homeless people are sleeping outdoors. Isabel took a trip down to the encampment to talk to the residents. Do you mind if we ask you guys a couple of questions? We'll read ahead. Set the scene for us. What does Tent City look like? When you're walking up to it, there's a bungee cord that's 
blocking entry, so we had to go underneath the bungee cord. And then there's a row of tents, shopping carts. This is a little table set up where they have a little bit of food. And every tent has blankets in it. Some of the tents are closer together, and they explained it to me by saying, you know, some of us want to be together. We had to put some of the people over on the other side of the street because they don't want to be in the same section, or maybe they don't do well in group situations. Another thing I noticed was they were all dressed really well. They had really high-quality jackets and boots and hats and sunglasses, and I think it has to do with, you know, all the donating that our community has been doing, and I think that says a lot about our community. How large is the encampment, and how visible is this from somebody going by on the street? It's actually a lot smaller than I pictured it to be. There was about five or six tents in one little group, and then a couple off to the side. And it's only visible by like 10 feet off the highway, so you can't see it a whole lot. Tell me about some of the people you met in Tent City that you had conversations with during your visit. I met with this man named James. He was actually a writer for a long time. He owns the Wolf radio station, and basically the reason why he's on the streets is because his radio station doesn't make money. It's more, He said it's more of a passion of his, and he's been living on the streets for 195 days. And the other man I met was Sean, and he's also been on the streets for quite a while. There was three of them there. One of them was a woman, but she didn't want to talk to us. And they all alternate. So they do actually sleep in the homeless shelters, but they spend their day in the tents because they have nowhere else to go. What do we know about why and how Tent City was created? Because this isn't just a couple tents where homeless people are living. This is kind of a community that was constructed there. So tell me more about that. Anybody staying in a shelter has to leave by 7.30 a.m., So where do they go, right, after that? Obviously, they can sleep in the shelters, and there's enough room for them there. So that's not necessarily the issue, but the issue is that they have to have somewhere to stay all day long. And so I think that's why it was originally created. And when I was talking to these men, they said, you know, Tent City is kind of like their home. It's their own little community where they get to spend time with people and their friends. So it's there's not as much rules as there are in the shelter, What are some of the challenges you heard that residents are experiencing in Tent City? Sean, one of the men that I was talking to, said that he has frostbite in all of his toes. He's lost complete feeling in his toes. Same with James. He has frostbite in his hand. So that's a big thing. And what people living in Tent City don't get compared to people in shelters is, I know at the St. John's house, they actually do foot care once a week. So that's where they check for frostbite, fungus issues, infections in the feet. So that's one major thing. And also, when you're living on the streets like that, you don't have a permanent address, which St. John's House allows you to use as a permanent address. So that means no Medicare. There's a whole bunch of things that you can't get access to when you don't have a permanent address. One thing that kind of struck me when I was talking to James, he said a lot of people think that we have this tent city because because the shelters are at capacity, but in reality, it's mostly because a lot of homeless people don't like using shelters they feel uncomfortable and because of the stigma around it so uh, that one really got to me i think some experts say the cost of living is contributing to the homelessness problem according to the community action group on homelessness's 2017 annual progress report the average rent for a two-bedroom unit climbed from 809 dollars per month in 2014 to 860 dollars per month in 2017 while social assistance remained unchanged at $537. 
The vacancy rate in Fredericton in October 2018 was 2.1%. Experts say that's a low rate for any marketplace and the lowest the city has seen in years. Eric Weissman struggled with the drug and alcohol addiction for years, couch surfing and sometimes sleeping outdoors. After his recovery, Weissman began filming a documentary at Toronto's Tent City, a waterfront community of about 125 people. Today, Weissman is a professor at the University of New Brunswick's St. John campus. He is currently conducting research on post-secondary homelessness. We invited him to the show to talk about his past experience and academic work. First, can you just start by explaining your own experience with homelessness and how this led you to doing this field of research? I want to tell you, first of all, that when I answer that question, I have to define what we mean by homelessness, right? So it's really important. When I was in my teens, like 17, 18 years old, we understood homeless people as people who were sleeping on streets, in park benches. They were mostly men and they were mostly drunks and we didn't look very highly upon them and we didn't realize we really looked at these experiences as negative and very isolated right so that was like the traditional you know for a hundred years that was the image of what a homeless person was we didn't think about people who were getting kicked out of their houses or moving you know using shelters from time to time or you know couch surfing we didn't think about that as any kind of homelessness but you know things got really bad in the 80s and so we changed that definition in the late 1970s i started like everybody else we started partying and doing drugs and never really a big deal in fact in the 80s going to university at the university of toronto we all partied everybody partied it was a heavy toronto was a very heavy party culture back then especially in university by the time i was doing my masters and started my phd though i was starting to uh I'd become addicted to a number of different substances, including from alcohol, mostly cocaine, and a bunch of other things, right? So, and I don't, I'm not shy talking about it. I, I share this story publicly in almost all my work. The problem was that I was still doing really well. Like, I was doing great marks, and I was teaching, and I had an art gallery, and I was doing all these amazing things. So no one really recognized that I had a problem, at least of all me. And then... You know, it's weird. You wake up one day and you just can't get out of bed without getting high. And so around 1987, I was starting a PhD and I was really messed up. And uh, I started losing the ability to manage my life. And within a year, you know, I didn't want to be in school anymore. And uh, all I wanted to do was paint and party. And I was using every day. So by, by 1988, I was basically doing everything I did to party and to feed my addiction. And I started losing my housing around that time. So what happened was I would end up staying at people's homes. I would stay in my, at my family's homes when I was in between places. And then I, would, then I went on welfare, and welfare paid for my housing. And when that would run out, I would end up, again, moving in and out of housing. So the reason I tell you this is that we recognize that type of experience as one of the four categories of homelessness today. That is perhaps the most devastating kind. It's the most common kind in Canada. We call this you know, couch surfing or precarious housing. And it affects more people than are affected by literal homelessness, which is sleeping on the streets. So I started out in that experience. I started out because of my addictions, not paying my bills, losing my housing, and relying on other people uh, for safety and for housing. It got bad enough, though, at times, so towards the end of my addictions, and by the early 1990s, by 94, 95, um, I was, like, all eight, in those 10 years, 
after I left my PhD, all I did, my world was completely dominated by that. That I was doing murals, I was painting, I ran a couple of bars, but life was totally oriented around the drug culture. So uh, sleeping at other people's homes and not having an address was, I mean, there were many of us who lived that way. We, we looked at it as a way of life. We did not think of it as homelessness then. And then um, I went to, re then I had to go to rehab in 1993, 90, sorry, in 1995, I, I was so messed up. I, for the year before that, I, I, had a, I had a bar. I was sleeping and living in my bar. I, I slept on the pool table for nine months. I mean, that is, I still didn't think of that as homelessness. I mm -hmm. thought of that as my home. But when I was in rehab, they told me that my family and no one I knew was going to take me back again. And that if I didn't go to long-term rehab, I would have no housing whatsoever. And then I was literally homeless. I had absolutely nowhere to go except to stay in rehab and, and recover. And so I did. And that's literally my experience. What led you to take this on as research? I started writing about it as soon as I went to rehab. You know, I had, I had three degrees in anthropology and sociology. I was always a social thinker, and I really thought about, you know, this is a really bizarre psychic transformation that happens to people. You know, people aren't necessarily born addicted. You know, they become that way. And those of us who come from uh, education and from good places, you know, you, you have a, a, a brutal identity shift. And for me, it was really profound. And so my way of dealing with it was writing about it. And it, it seemed really fundamental to me that the, the key identity problem I had was that I didn't have housing. You know, as a Canadian growing up in those in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the idea of having housing is central to my identity. And here I was not having any. So I started thinking about what that meant. And when I got to Toronto in 96 after rehab, I moved back to Toronto, and there was there were people on the streets everywhere. It was I've ne I'd never seen it that way before. It's like going away and getting getting my head together, sort of changed the way I saw things and I started seeing the problem more visibly than I had before. So I started writing stories about um, my own experience and some of the people I met. Your research into post-secondary homelessness in particular has determined that this is a bigger issue across the country more than people realize. What is the scope of this problem and what can be done to prevent it? I said originally when, when we did this research that we only, we'd only done one survey and we couldn't find a lot of research, but we did find one article that was done at the University of Alberta where they interviewed close to 2,000 people. And in fact, they found that the issues that we were discovering were the same issues, but nobody was really sure of the numbers. We did one sample at one college in Alberta, and we found that of that population that we studied, about 3% of them were when they filled out the survey, we're experiencing one of these types of homelessness. I am not comfortable saying that this is necessarily the national picture of things. We don't know that yet. That's why we're doing it at UMB, and we're doing it at Calgary, and we're doing it at Lakehead right now. We're trying to get a bigger picture of what the numbers really look like. But based on what we discovered, so 3.4% people said that they were experiencing one of those types of homelessness that are defined by the Canadian Observatory of Homelessness. So that means Given that there's 2,023,000 post-secondary students in Canada, if that number was a national number, if we found that it was consistent across the board, that would mean that at any given time, close to 70,000 students might be homeless in the country. And that's a big deal. That's a big issue. New Brunswick appears to be experiencing a rise in homelessness with full shelters in Fredericton and Moncton and tent communities popping up. Right. What is contributing to this? You've had a, a decline economically in terms of jobs and the availability, and not only that, the kinds of jobs that you people have, 
especially if they're lower paying, don't buy as much as they used to buy. While the cost of everything has gone up, the cost of housing here has gone up. It used to be that while it's relatively less expensive to be housed here than in the rest of the country, it's still higher than it is for many people. If you think about what people get here if they're on assistance, it's $537 a month. The average rent here is $640 a month. So if you're only getting that on assistance and, you're, and you have to pay 640 you're already operating on a deficit, so you're living below the poverty line. So that's one reason. So the secondary reason is because of the availability of jobs. They're just they're declining, and they're very often seasonal. With the large resource-based economy that we have here, especially with refineries and mills, you know, and they go through periodic shutdowns and restarts, so people find themselves in and out of, of work, too. So shelter use is not, it's not a straight line. It goes up and down depending on the seasons and depending on other factors in the economy and in terms of the migration of people. Not everybody who, who needs housing uses shelters, by the way. So the shelters are, are becoming full. One of the reasons they're filling up is not necessarily that the numbers are increasing, but the constitution, the demographics of the numbers are changing. So you have an increasing number of vulnerable people losing their housing. So people who suffer uh, mental or physical uh, disabilities women, women with children, and they can't cut it, and they're not going to be able to make it on the streets, so they're more likely to access shelters, and their numbers are increasing. So that's one reason why shelter use is increasing. Another thing is these the tent camps that are popping up are popping up based on some surveys. They're popping up because people don't want to use shelters, but the shelters themselves are they're overcrowded, they get sick there, and so they're trying to, and believe it or not, throughout North America, these tent camps, a lot of people say, are better than shelters. If you take those two factors, the fact that some, the number of people needing shelters, like vulnerable people, people who are frail, uh, that number is increasing in our population. So that means that a lot of other people are going to find alternative means to house themselves. And that's why tent camps are popping up. What can the provincial and federal governments do to better address housing insecurity? Now, in New Brunswick, we have a great program for giving people tuition. And, you know, I'm, I think that that's a basic right, and I think that's what every province should do. I also think you've got to give people housing. I mean, I just don't understand how you can see education as a basic right and not housing. I don't care what it costs, but nobody's going to be able to deal with their whatever issues they might or might not have. Don't forget, not everybody. Look, I, got, I, went, I, I ended up losing my housing because I was an addict, but that's not why most people are on the streets or why people lose their housing. In my case, it was. People are, are there because... They don't have the supports that they that we th- traditionally think people have. They may not have the education that they need. They may have physical or other issues that they have to deal with, but nobody's going to be able to deal with any of that if they don't have housing, period. So mm-hmm. let's build housing. I mean, really, that's the solution. Can you describe a little bit more, like, what these tent communities, such as the one in Fredericton, are like and how municipal governments typically respond to them? Well, it's funny that you say that because I did a um, I did a video conference with one of the leaders of that community about three weeks ago, and he said that you know we're an unofficial community, we're not sanctioned, it's not legal. Yet the city, when people when people leave jails or when the shelters overflow, the city literally brings people to our camp, even though it's not recognized officially. That tent camp provides an essential service. It's an extension an unofficial extension, in my opinion, of the shelter system. So, you know, we need to do two things, and this is, there's a big debate, right? So people who work in my field, are, they debate two things. One is some people say we need to build more emergency shelters, and some people say we need to build more housing, and I say we need to do both. 
I mean, that's just the way it is. Some people need emergency housing on a short term, and some people need housing long term that they can afford. So we need to really concentrate our efforts on those two areas. So these tent camps that are popping up are, are a response to um, two things. One is a lot of people won't use shelters. They've used them before. They get sick there. Also, shelters have rules, and they have sometimes they have rules that say you can't stay here with your pet or with your girlfriend or boyfriend or your partner, right? They're very hard on people who are, have, have uh, unconventional bi- uh, gender identities. So it's really difficult to be a member of LGBTQ communities and be comfortable in a shelter, especially in this area where there are no where there are no LGBTQ shelters that I'm aware of. So shelter use itself, it sounds like a great idea, but not everybody wants to use shelters, and so they very often find themselves building these tent communities. This is not comfortable living, so I'm not happy when I see it, but I completely understand it because I know the people that are there beca- are there because they feel they have nowhere else to go. When you see those things, this is not, and if you see your city supporting these things, this is not the city doing something about the housing problem. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode. We would love to hear your comments and thoughts on homelessness in Fredericton. To leave a comment by voicemail, give us a call at 506-999-4993. And we might play it on our next episode. For January's show, we'll take a look at efforts to preserve Indigenous languages in the province. This has been a production of the Brunswickin and CHSR. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Alexander Silberman. And I'm Isabel Legier. See you next month.